fantastic. Let me um, lead us in prayer as we begin. Um, and then we'll have a think about those verses together. Father, thanks that you love to speak to your people, your children. And thank you that you are a good father. He loves to give us good things. And so we pray as we look at these verses together this morning. Um, even though we are apart geographically and yet we are together in Christ, pray that you would speak to us. Even though we're uh, doing Zoom church again. And for many that's difficult and frustrating. Um, please speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say that uh, on the battlefield, um, you are to divide and conquer, whether that is a literal battlefield uh, or in the boardroom or the sports field or as kids try and get what they want from their parents. You go first to mum and then you go to dad because you know one of them will be easy. Um, you divide and conquer. What, why do we do that? Why do we say that? Well, as soon as a team is split apart and forming factions and there is division in the ranks, then you know the game is over and the battle is won. It's a slightly silly example, but if you've ever watched Bear Grylls, The Island, it's a kind of survival show and he puts a number of people on this island and he says, you must find water and food and shelter. And those things are really important for the first day or so. But it's striking that for their long-term survival, they must be unified. And you know that once infighting and squabbling begins, you know that they won't actually last that long. And that seems to be something of what we get in this next bit in Philippians. That there are pressures from outside the church squeezing them, which mean that divisions on the inside are beginning to form. And this really matters because when churches divide, it's almost as if the unifying work of Christ on the cross is undone. What Jesus has brought together, we then divide. And the sad thing is, Christians are great at dividing over all kinds of things. Have a think with me, probably pre-lockdown, about some of what you like or you dislike about Magdalen Road Church. Be honest. The things that you're happy with, the things that you're not so happy with. And I have to say, these are all from conversations I've had with folk in the church over the years. I know some of you think there should be more singing each week, ideally with songs together, and some of you think there should be less. Some of you think that the worship, the singing, should be with newer songs indefinitely led from a guitar, and some of you think that they should be older songs definitely led from a piano. Some of you think that women should certainly preach at church, and others think they shouldn't ever. Some of you think that God is utterly sovereign and in charge. He, he even chooses people to be his before the, the beginning of time, and then some of you think we actually choose God. Some of you think it's fine to baptise babies. Some of you think it certainly isn't. Some of you might think we should have more charismatic spiritual gifts going on in the life of the church, and some of you think they don't even exist in that way anymore. Some of you think evangelism should be done in a certain way, organised or events-based. Some of you think it should be more organic and relational. Some of you think one version of the Bible is the best version and the only version, and you feel very passionately about that. Some of you don't really know what they're getting upset about. Some of you have a favourite Christian author. Some of you can't really stand them. And the list goes on and on and on and on. There are all kinds of things that we could divide about. 
Yet it's striking. One of the brilliant things I think about Magdalen Road Church is that in, in the scheme of things, we are relatively diverse and mixed as a group of people, all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of baggage, all kinds of skeletons in the closet, all kinds of experiences. And yet we're pretty united, I think. It's one thing that God seems to have maintained among us, and that's really, really exciting. It's great in the, the Zoom coffee breakout rooms to, to look around the screen and see all kinds of people from across the spectrum genuinely catching up with each other, genuinely caring for each other. Not something that's forced, but just seems to be a natural outliving of what it means to be a Christian. But it can be hard, can't it, to be united in church? It's especially perhaps hard when, when life is hard. Let's be honest, when life gets messy, when the pressure is on and we're not in a good place, we easily just turn inward, looking in on self and find that we are less patient or, or less kind, almost like there's an us in there that we didn't know was there and we, we don't much like. And so you see, what Paul wants for the Christians in Philippi and for us to consider is how we conduct ourselves, how we behave when life is hard. And what Paul will say is this, three things this morning. He will say, number one, live in a manner worthy of Jesus. Number two, and so keep loving and serving one another. Number three, because Jesus loved and served you. Now, hopefully I can do something here. First point, live in a manner worthy of Jesus. Have a look down at verse 27 with me. And the big idea is this, just as Paul was suffering and the gospel had spread, we saw that last week, now he wants that idea, that reality to carry over into Philippi. Just as Paul was suffering and the gospel still spread, so he wants them, even though they are suffering, he wants the gospel to spread there too and to continue to do its work in Philippi. How are they suffering? Well, have a look down verse 28. So, those who oppose you, he says, or verse 29, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. He says, you're, you're walking like Jesus. It's been granted to you, Christian. It's the normal Christian life. He suffered and so, so you suffer. But really what Paul's big concern is, is what will happen next. How will they respond to the oppression and the hardship and the suffering? What are the Philippians going to do? And I wonder if there are two big concerns for Paul at this point. I think the first concern might be this. Will they compromise? Will they just blend in and be the same as everyone else? Will they adopt the, the persona of the chameleon so that you can't actually see them? You know that temptation, don't you? When the heat gets turned up and we just quieten down a bit. I wonder if you see that in verse 27 says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in the Greek, it's actually the language of citizenship, which, which they in Philippi will understand. Because you see, Philippi, which was in Greece, was a Roman colony. And so you would geographically live in Philippi, but in terms of your identity, well, actually, you would consider yourself a Roman. Which means that the Philippians were people living in a town that was their home, but but not quite their home. It was a sort of outcrop of Rome. And well, so it is with these Christians in Philippi. Actually, you get it over the page in 3 verse 20 as well. But our citizenship is in heaven, says Paul, as we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's as if Paul is saying to them, remember who you really are, Christians. Remember who you really belong to. Because you're citizens of another country, another place. You're not at home here. You're from somewhere different. You to live that out. It's, it's important for us to grasp that, isn't it? It's very relevant. However we usually fill our weeks. When, do you see, when everyone else is proverbially bowing to Caesar, well, Christian, you are to bow to Jesus. You have a different master. Everyone else is getting drunk, then you stay sober. Everyone else loves to gossip and backbite and be mean about that person, that, that person in class. You, you're to speak words of grace. Everyone else is complaining and moaning and whining and whinging and you're to learn contentment. Or whatever the pressure is for you in your situation, in your context, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so do you see the excuse that, well, everyone else is doing it, that doesn't work because you're different. Because you dance to a different tune, you, you are to live as someone from another place. You are a citizen of heaven. And so we're to be different, says Paul. That seems to be the first concern from Paul's mind. One, will they compromise? The second concern, I think, is will they divide? Will they, as we began, will they turn in on each other and squabble and fight? Will it get messy, um, like on the island with Bear grills? Actually, we've briefly touched on it in previous weeks. The signs aren't great in Philippi. If you flick over, if you like, to the start of chapter four, there are a couple of people, Euodia and Syntyche, and they are scrapping. Maybe, maybe the cracks are beginning to show. And so the question then is, well, how does Paul help if division is possible? They are likely to squabble and fight. What does Paul say? Second point. Keep loving and serving one another. How can they be unified? Well, the answer is through humility. You see, when we're proud and hard-hearted and we won't listen and we won't be told, and when we stand on our rights and we consider ourselves first, then, then comes the anger and the finger-pointing and the division. But you see it there in verse 3 and 4, chapter 2. They are extraordinary verses. I think those two verses particularly are haunting verses for selfish hearts. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. I mean, that's hard at the best of times, isn't it? But especially so when we're all a bit out of sorts as at the moment. And you see, we automatically think my life is about me. And Paul flips it on its head and he says, no, no, your life. It's not about you, it's about them. It's about everyone else. So perhaps even better, your life, it's first about him. And so then it can be about them. It's not just a question of gritting our teeth and being as humble as we can be. I must be more humble. No, it's, it's giving out of what God has given us. 
He's been so generous to us, and so we're to be generous to others. He's shown us grace, and so we show grace to others. He provides mercy every morning, and so we are merciful every morning with others. As we often say at Modern Mode, it's a box of chocolates that you're offering round, and, and suddenly you twig, it's a monster box, and you didn't realise it. It's almost like a TARDIS. There's this never-ending supply of layers. It looks bigger on the inside. There's chocolate after chocolate, and you can offer it round and round and round. Well, so it is with God. We've, we've got these bags and bags and bags of grace from him, more than we know what to do with. And so we offer it round to others. God's not stingy. Grace is not something we have to unpick his fingers from. Let's have a look down at verse 1 and 2. That Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love and being one in spirit and of one mind. See the vast, glorious, abundant kindness of God overflowing layer after layer after layer, bags and bags and bags of grace. And he says, now, Philippians, share that around. Because of what you've received, be united. Because of all you have in Christ, be united. Because you are united to him, be united to one another, Philippians. And you see, if we're ever tempted to think that we can't do it or, or that service of others is demeaning or life draining or the answer, the answer is Jesus. He is the antidote. Why? Well, he's the antidote to thinking we can't do it. He's the antidote to thinking that it'll be demeaning to always serve others. He is the antidote. And so he says, keep loving and serving one another, Christians. Why? Verse 5 to 11. Well, because Jesus loved and served you. Final point. Because Jesus loved and served you. Um, Familiar verses, I think, for many of us. But let me read them. Have a look down with me. Follow them with me. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name, that is, the, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's striking. The assumption of this section, verse 5, is that in a church family like Philippi or like Modern Road, we will be rubbing shoulders with each other. This is not about programs or courses or formal stuff, but verse five, it's in, it's in relationship. It's, it's about our posture towards everyone else. That's hard in our current context, isn't it? 
maybe we need to file some of these thoughts away and consider what it will mean as we're back together again. Maybe we need to think about what this means for our online or verbal interactions. Or maybe we need to think about what it means in our own house with our own family or our housemates. Considering others better than ourselves and looking to others' needs though, it's hard, isn't it? Where do we start with this? Well, Paul says first step, it's about shifting how we think. It's about a mindset, have the same mindset that Jesus had. But that's where gospel humility begins. It begins with a decision. It's a decision we need to make up here to be deliberate, to be intentional, to, to plan to serve others, which is not natural or easy. Trouble is my immediate reaction far too often, and especially when life is hard, is, is to think about me, to put me first. You see that, that overarching humility that Paul is talking about, that Jesus exemplifies, goes against the flow of the world, but it, it will look different for each of us. Depending on our age, depending on our stage, depending on our context, depending on our personality, depending on our character. If you're a child, it might be that you submit to your parents. You listen to them, you respect them, you honour them. If you're in a marriage, it will work its way out in a different way. If you're at work with colleagues, those above you, those below you, what does humility look like in that context? Do you find yourself on different teams, different groups? How does humility work its way out in those relationships? Or as you relate in church to people who are much older than you? What does humility look like? Or, or much younger or from different cultures or backgrounds, submit and be humble and serve and love and have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, says Paul. But what was that attitude of mind? What's Paul wanting us to think about? 12 verse 6. Do you see it? Even though, even though Jesus had every right and was totally and utterly entitled to be served and worshipped and glorified, he could have claimed that. The one person in all the world, in all of history, who could claim that. And yet it seems because of the very nature of God, he did the opposite. What's he saying? I think he's saying this, I think he's saying at the heart of who God is, the heart of the Trinity, you have three persons. He's, he's loving and giving and other-centered. The Father loves the Son who loves the Spirit. He, and so because he's God, he serves his people. Because our God gives, so our God serves. It's extraordinary. In his human frame, he, he put aside his rights and his position, and his power, and his authority, and he humbled himself for us. It's not half-hearted service either, was it? It's costly service from Jesus. I think our problem often is we're, we're good at doing a bit of serving on our terms, but not so for Jesus. One person said this a while ago, that we re realise how servant-hearted we are when someone starts treating us like a servant. But Jesus laid it all down. 
you say it, see it there in verse eight. It's, imagine it's the big Nike tick. Um, kids and those using the handouts, you'll see there's a big Nike tick there to help you imagine that. Um, I think there are big, there are four enormous steps down from Jesus and then a huge tick up again. And the four steps down, I think of this. Number one, he takes on a human nature. Number two, he becomes a servant. Number three, he dies. And number four, he dies a particular type of death, which means he becomes a curse. Deuteronomy 21 would say that. Um, anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. Jesus dies on the cross, punished for our sins, punished instead of me, instead of you. He serves. He loves. In humility. I've heard that in lockdown, um, there are people who seem to have more time. And some of them are watching classic films, um, films that they've always wanted to see but never actually seen. Um, and one film, a classic, that people are catching up on, I hear, is, is The Last Emperor. Um, there's, a, there's an amazing story in The Last Emperor, an amazing glimpse, a scene where the young child is anointed as the last emperor of China. And he lives this life of luxury. He's got thousands of servants at his command. And his brother comes and asks him and says, what, what happens when you do wrong? And he says, when I do wrong, someone else is punished. And to demonstrate that, he, he deliberately picks up a jar and he breaks it. And, you know, one of his servants is beaten for him. He's, he's too powerful for punishment. But isn't it striking for the Christian? Jesus reverses that pattern. The, uh, the servants get it wrong. And so the king is punished. He willingly and humbly serves you. And he willingly and he humbly serves me. Taking those four big steps down. Why? Why would Jesus do this for us? Why on earth did he leave it all? The, the comfort of heaven to, to take on a body, to take on a human nature, to die on a cross. Why? Well, there's an irony here because the answer is our pride. Do you know, we're considering his humility and yet the, the problem is our pride. Why? Because our pride is, is always finally directed against God. Whenever we sin, whenever we turn against him, whenever we do it our way, whenever we ignore what God says. So just like Adam and Eve at the beginning, we envy God, we envy his position and, and we think we know better and we'll do it our way. Thank you very much. It's our pride, isn't it? And we're proud and we deserve to be humbled. But the sheer wonder of the gospel is this. Because of our pride, Jesus humbles himself. He steps down and he faces our curse. We're a prideful people, hard hearts, and we won't be told. It's fair to say as well that our pride can be such a barrier to us grasping, accepting, believing that we need God to forgive us. Friends, maybe you're watching in and you're not a regular at Magdalen Road or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not quite sure. Um, let me uh, read to you a, a letter from um, the author C.S. Lewis. He wrote to another author named Sheldon 
Um, no, so it's a letter to C.S. Lewis from another author named Sheldon um, Van Ocken. Um, they were having um, letters back and forth interchanging ideas of Christian faith. Um, and Sheldon was wrestling with concepts of faith and he writes honestly, very honestly, of his problem with the gospel of Jesus. He says this, he says, there is nothing in Christianity which is so repugnant to me as humility, the bent knee. If I knew beyond hope or despair that Christianity were true, my fight forever after would have to be against the pride of the spine may break, but it never bends. He's not prepared to bow. Because of our pride, because of our self-service, because we won't be told, then... So Jesus walks in humility and self-sacrifice for us. And yet you see the point, as his people, it is his humility that is to mark us. A humility, first of all, in, in just simply receiving that gift of grace from him. But then it's the daily pattern of humility as well. And so when we say we can't serve, who wants to clear away the table again? Who wants to do the washing up again? Who, who wants to sort out the rotors or tidy up or prep for teaching kids that don't seem to listen on Zoom or cook a meal for them at dinner time or, or go to the prayer meeting or give money away or whatever it might be. Whenever we say we can't serve. Well, Paul says this is what we were made for. Service is what we were made for. And don't think from this that Jesus is out to crush you or to put you in your place. The surprise is humility is liberating. To serve is to be like him. To be like him is why you were created. It's how churches under pressure remain united. And it's not just an aimless drudgery. A road without end. It's the road to glory. The Nike tick has stopped going down. And so it rises and rises and rises again. Verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see, it didn't end in a funeral. It ended in a coronation. His, his humility led to his throne as his father crowned him king of kings. Jesus gave away his glory only to be given it back again. So verse 10, one day everyone will bow down to him. There is final, absolute, total and utter unity. Everybody bowing to King Jesus one day. And then finally, with this we'll finish, God the Father does the glorifying. Do you see, if, have a look down again, if, if the central character in verse 6 to 8 really is Jesus, it's he who does the considering, he who does the humbling, he who does the submitting. But in 9 to 11, it's God the Father who does the glorifying. He raises, he exalts Jesus. Jesus takes the steps downwards, and so the Father raises him up again. And so it is for us. Our hearts bent is to look for glory. We, we look to be noticed. We, we look for power and prestige, a platform. We want to be famous, to leave a legacy, to be admired and remember, but, remembered. But 
see from these verses. Greatness in the kingdom and gospel unity in churches comes from this Jesus type humility mindset that we have. How we think of others, how we serve others, how we follow the example of our crucified and our reigning King Jesus. Friends, do you want to be great? Well, greatness comes through Jesus-like service. Let's follow him in the strength that he gives us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your extraordinary love for us. Thank you for your humble service. Thank you for being prepared to step down and down and down and down. And we long that you would give us that mindset. We long that you would humble us. You would take away our pride. We, we long that you would help us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others above ourselves. Help us to do that all the time, but particularly help us to do that now. In lockdown and out of sorts. Give us patience with each other, please. Help us to be gracious. In Jesus' name. Amen.